Hey everyone, welcome to TaxCast with Chelsea, where I give you a small dose of interesting tax news and answer commonly asked tax questions. Today's three topics will cover upcoming tax issues for many taxpayers and consumers. First, how to file your 1099 forms if you're self-employed for free using the irs.gov website and a quick review of who should file and when these forms are due. Also, the FTX crypto loss and tax reporting. There's information provided by Bob Jennings, CPA, on December 14th, 2022 through his tax speaker newsletter, and we'll discuss how to handle this on your tax return. Lastly, why is it so hard to find a tax accountant? Get my inside analysis on why finding a competent tax advisor will continue to be a challenge. Also, I'll equip you with some of the questions to ask in your next interview to hire your next tax advisor. With the end of the tax year coming up, our office is gearing up to file 1099s and other payroll forms that are due in January. However, you don't need an accountant to file your 1099s. In fact, of all the government forms, they are pretty simple, and now the IRS has made it even more simple to file your own using their website. The IRS considers this 1099 requirement as informational returns that alerts the IRS of income for the payee and legitimizes the expense for the payor for tax purposes. While there are many different third-party softwares out there, you can actually do this for free on irs.gov website. As described on their website, the Informational Returns Intake System, IRIS, Taxpayer Portal is a system that provides no-cost online method for taxpayers to electronically file their 1099 series. The Taxpayer Portal also allows you to enter data to create the 1099 forms by either keying in the information or you can upload a CSV file. The portal allows taxpayers to electronically prepare and file the 1099 series without software or a service provider. You can also download and print the recipient copy of the Form 1099 for distribution to your payees. You can maintain a record of the completed and filed distributed forms for the 1099 series. You can perform basic validation of the 1099 data before you submit. You can file up to 100 forms at a time per submission. You can also participate in the Combined Federal and State Filing Program, referred to as the CFSF Program section for more information. Because as you know, these forms are not only due to the federal, but they're also due to each state. You can also go online and request automatic extensions and file certain corrected informational returns if you find that you've made a mistake. Right now, you should file electronically if you have more than 250 returns to process. Also, who exactly should be filing 1099s? Any person engaged in a trade or business, including a corporation, a partnership, individual estate, and trust, those who make reportable transactions during the calendar year must file informational returns to report those transactions to the IRS. People required to file informational returns to the IRS must also furnish these statements to the other party, the recipient of the transaction. Common forms of for most taxpayers need to file are the 1099-NEC, that's your non-employee compensation form that was separated a few years ago on its own from the 1099 miscellaneous form. Payments also that are made to an attorney go on the 1099-NEC form. There's also the common form of 1099 miscellaneous, M-I-S-C, that's where you report rent, other income, medical and healthcare payments, which also includes payments to VET for farm activities. And then you also have your 1099 interest form where you report interest paid to a recipient of more than $10. There are other forms that can be filed on the IRS website. These are just some of the common forms. To get set up on the IRS website, 
you will need to use your taxpayer portal. And to do that, external users will have to validate their identities using the latest authentication process prior to completing the IRIS application for transmitter control code, also known as TCC. You can do the IRIS application for the TCC. It's available on irs.gov backslash IRIS. So you go on there, you can click sign up, then you go through the application for the TCC button, then you click on the access IRIS application for the TCC button, and then you can sign in and create your accounts to begin the process. You must complete and submit this IRIS application for the TCC in order to file the 1099s online. This process can actually take up to 45 days for them to accept and process your application. So give yourself time if you're going to do this online yourself. Otherwise, you may have to file an extension before getting your TCC set up. So whether you file your 1099s yourself or have a third party submit them on your behalf, it's also important not to overlook that this compliance element for informational reporting is important. Corporate tax returns and even self-employment forms like Schedule E's, Schedule C's, and farm activities, they ask on the tax return if you were required to issue the 1099 forms and did you do so. By simply checking no while at the same time reporting payments like in the contract labor field, it could create a simple exception report for the IRS that could trigger an audit if they wanted to track it that easily. So remember that this is more than compliance. You can actually get fined if you do not process your 1099s. Fees for 2022, the IRS can charge up to $50 for 30 days for a late payee statement sent out. And these fees get longer throughout the year. So it can actually add up to be pretty costly. I had a client that delayed four or five months in issuing their 1099s and they got a $7,000 penalty in which they are still trying to abate. Recipient forms are due on the 31st of January and all 1099 NECs are due on the 31st of January. They don't get the March 31st extension like some of the other forms do. So yes, there is an extension on some of the forms, but most of them are due on the 31st of January. One last thing to remember is if you're going to need to file 1099s, it's best to collect a W-9 from your contractor, your attorney, or anybody else providing services before you issue their payment. Otherwise, waiting until December or January of the following year, you may have a hard time getting this information to process these 1099s timely. I don't want to belittle everything that's going in the news right now regarding FTX and many investors who have lost a lot of money. But it is important to know that there is a tax impact on the FTX scandal. So in light of the recent FTX bankruptcy proceedings and the indictment of Sam Bankman-Fried on December 12th, many have wondered about the stability of the crypto market. While I only understand broadly crypto's conceptual framework, it is important to remember that the FTX is a scandal and it is about fraud. According to the interim CEO, John J. Ray, who is an insolvency professional, He said in a recent federal court bankruptcy filing that never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information as occurred here. From compromised systems integrity and faulty regulatory oversight board to the concentration of control in the hands of a very small group of inexperienced, unsophisticated, and potentially compromised individuals, this situation is unprecedented. Unfortunately, the fraud is not new, but in this case of the cryptocurrency, there may be 
many who have invested in FTX and now are looking how to handle the loss on their tax return. Bob Jennings, who is a CPA and owner of TaxSpeaker, an accredited tax education organization, he recently summarized the guidance in his December 14th newsletter on how to handle the crypto loss. There are two main IRS revenue rulings that guide his review. Revenue ruling 2009-09, which provides guidance for the income tax treatment of the losses, and then revenue procedure 2009-20, which provides a safe harbor for how to compute and when to deduct the losses. According to Mr. Jennings, the revenue ruling states that the investor is entitled to a theft loss, which is not a capital loss, which is normally limited to $3,000 per tax year. In other words, a theft loss from a Ponzi-type investment scheme is not subject to the normal limits on losses from investments, which typically limit the loss deduction to $3,000 per year if it exceeds capital gains from investments. The revenue ruling clarifies that the investment theft losses are not subject to limitations that are applicable to personal casualty and theft losses. The loss is deductible as an itemized deduction, but it is not subject to the 10% of AGI reduction or the $100 reduction that applies to many casualty and theft loss deductions. This means it is not a casualty loss itemized deduction, which is currently not allowed, but instead it is treated as a regular miscellaneous itemized deduction allowed in a similar manner as gambling losses. The theft loss is deductible in the year the fraud is discovered, except to the extent that there is a claim with a reasonable prospect of recovery. Determining the year of discovery and applying the reasonable prospect of recovery test to any particular theft is highly fact-intensive and can be the source of controversy. The revenue procedure accompanying this revenue whirling provides a safe harbor approach that the IRS will accept for reporting Ponzi-type theft losses. The amount of the theft loss includes the investor's unrecovered investment, including income as reported in past tax years. The ruling concludes that the investor generally can claim a theft loss deduction not only for the net amount invested, but also for the so-called fictitious income that the promoter of the scheme credited to the investor's account and on which the investor reported as income on his or her tax returns for years prior to discovery of the theft. So how and when to deduct the loss? The revenue procedure provides two simplifying assumptions that taxpayers may use to report their losses. You have the deemed theft loss. Although the law does not require a criminal conviction of the promoter to establish a theft loss, it often is difficult to determine how extensive the evidence of theft must be to justify a claimed theft loss. The revenue procedure provides that the IRS will deem the loss to be the result of theft if, number one, the promoter was charged under the state federal law with commission of fraud, embezzlement, or a similar crime that would meet the definition of the theft, or two, the promoter with the subject of a state or federal criminal complaint alleging the commission of such a crime, and three, either there was some evidence of an admission of guilt by the promoter or a trustee was appointed to freeze the assets of the scheme. So there's a safe harbor prospect of recovery. Once the theft is discovered, it often is difficult to establish the investor's prospect of recovery. Prospect of recovery is important because it limits the amount of the investor's theft loss deduction. Prospect of recovery is difficult to determine, particularly when litigation against the promoter and other potentially liable third parties extends into future taxable years. The revenue procedure generally permits taxpayers to deduct in the year of the discovery 95% of their net investment less 
the amount of any actual recovery in the year of discovery and the amount of any recovery expected from private or other insurance, such as that provided by the Securities Investor Protection Corporation, the SIPC. A special rule applies to investors who are suing persons other than the promoter. These investors compute their deduction by substituting 75% for 95% in the formula above. So in summary, Mr. Jennings, who is also an active tax practitioner, believes that investors in the FTX and its related entities as a result of the federal indictment on the FTX founder will qualify for a 2022 itemized deduction of 95% of their basis if following all of the above rules. This last segment, I want to give you all an inside perspective on what is happening in the small business tax industry in finding a competent tax professional. Over the last several years, our office has noticed a common thing when we interview a new client on why they're looking for a new tax accountant. It's the same story. Their previous CBA had limited communication. The client didn't understand or couldn't ask how their tax liability was calculated, nor was their planning or advisory services offered. Many taxpayers are left in the dark after completing their annual taxes, leaving most to find more engaging tax professionals after their work has been completed. The main issues that small tax firms are facing can be summed up in really two main components, finding experienced employees inside the tax firm and then pricing for value. The last few years have highlighted the fact that there are a lot more jobs in the U.S. than people looking to fill them. Some say that this is not a short-term issue just on the heels of COVID, but rather the birth rate has actually slowed down in the U.S. and is way under replacement value. What I mean by this is that the U.S. 2020 birth rate was 55.8 births per 1,000 women, while in 2007 it was 69.3 per 1,000, which is a 20% decline. Compare that with the peak of birth rates that was between 1955 and 1960 when there were 3.6 children born per woman. Now they say that there needs to be 2.1 births for every woman in order to have a sustainable population. And the U.S. is simply not cutting it with under two births per woman. So now we have one of the largest generations, the baby boomers, retiring while at the same time, no sustainable replacements. This generation is always considered the wealthiest meaning they are also looking for more tax planning and advisory service to help mitigate taxes. This greater population replacement issue trickles down into the service industry and the accounting and tax firms are also impacted. In a previous episode, I discussed that the IRS waits at least two to three years for a revenue agent to get enough experience before processing, quote, high income tax returns, which is really anybody who makes more than $100,000 to $200,000 of income. I'd say at minimum, this is the same tax experience needed for an internal tax account to prepare taxes and still add value. Most accounting curriculums at universities cater to passing the CPA exam and not necessarily what it takes to be a small business tax accountant that includes navigating issues like payroll tax filings, state requirements, and then even looking for special credits for taxpayers, as well as looking into sales tax requirements for each industry, which is also state-specific. Imagine a new grad surprise when they enter their first tax job and told that they will be working 60 to 80 hours a week through April and that there will probably be required additional overtime after that, potentially through October. The workload can be a great way to learn, but is also a fast track to burnout. I remember watching a Wall Street Journal video last year that interviewed some grads from prestigious universities around the Northeast 
One of them described looking for their job that, quote, emotionally fulfilled their existence at work. I was really shocked by that expectation. While there can be enjoyment and positive relationships built at work to achieve a common mission, fulfilling anyone emotionally is a tall order, if not impossible. Of course, this sentiment can be seen in the under 30 crowd pretty easily, as we know that emotions can change from day to day, and they like to display these emotions on social media. I pity any person who's let a job be their anchor for emotional stability, yet this is our replacement generation. It's no wonder then that the accounting degree is becoming less attractive to college grads. According to the 2021 AICPA Trends Report, accounting graduates tended downward in the 2019 to 2020 academic year, with a decrease of almost 3% for bachelor's level and over 8% at the master's level. In 2019, the same percentage of decline was 4% for both bachelor's and master's. The CPA Journal also cited that in 2020, CPA firms decreased hiring 10% for new college grads, which had already followed an 11% decrease from 2016 to 2018. So as you can see, accounting trends and hiring possibilities for this profession are outside of just COVID-related issues. So what does that mean for the future of your favorite tax firm? They will continue to see more of their partners retire, while at the same time, there will be a smaller number of employees to choose from to replace them. The small tax firm then will have to compete with higher wage prices to retain and attract competent and competitive employees, which falls into the next topic of pricing for value and covering increasing costs. It's important to realize that the small tax firm doesn't compete with DIY software. You can't expect H&R Block software prices, Intuit prices, or even IRS's free file forms online to be synonymous with a small tax firm. If you want numbers to just be inputted without thought or review, then it is more affordable to do it yourself. In fact, for many, DIY software actually does a decent job if you're just simply inputting simple numbers and checking the box for compliance. However, in this upcoming decade, you will see the successful tax practitioners start to differentiate themselves through value pricing if they want to survive and thrive. This firm will deliver on staying current with active tax planning, staying current on tax laws, as well as assisting clients with their questions and working in tandem with their financial advisors and estate attorneys to tax plan for the future. Right now, our industry is falling prey to the classic demand curve of demand and price. There is burnout due to too many people working for too little price, you know, sales value, hence the decrease in service offering as I described at the beginning. You will see a higher price due to the demand for great firms. So you'll have to ask, what do I value in a tax partitioner relationship? Is it simply transactional and compliance, or do you want more service in the upcoming decade? Begin for asking referrals and interviewing who you think would be a great financial partner in your tax planning, because I promise you, they will be harder and harder to find in the future. When interviewing, find out what technology the firm uses to deliver and communicate information. Find out if it's secure. Ask the firm if they have contingency plans when someone leaves a firm. For example, is there more than one person in the firm that works on your situation or anybody's situation? Ask your financial advisor if there are tax practitioners that they recommend and trust. Do not wait until November or December when you find out that your tax advisor is retiring to seek out a new tax professional. Tax professional, more than likely, they won't be able to take you on that late in the game. Most accounting firms see an activity decrease inside the firm between June and August and that is when I recommend reaching out to new firms. You don't have to like my analysis to know what I've said is true. 
I talk to firm owners daily. I get feedback on the big four hiring practices and simply in watching the trends. The tax and accounting firm Conundrum is personified across the U.S. for both big and small firms. Ultimately, the ones that survive will be the ones that are selective with their employees as well as with their clients. Thanks again for listening. And you can find today's links in the show notes below from today's podcast. If you like this podcast, then please hit subscribe and add a five-star rating so that other people can listen too. If you're interested in finding out more about tax speaker, tax education, then you can check out their products in the link below. Also, feel free to connect and let me know your ideas for a future tax cast. <laughs>